Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Mitchell Seymour describes digging up a dinosaur. But first up, here's the news. No more ageing brains. Building on the work that showed the blood from old mice makes young mice age, and blood from young mice makes aged mice younger. Hanadi Yusuf at Stanford University in California has identified a protein that causes aging symptoms and a treatment to block its effects. Her treatment can prevent the effects of aging in the brains of mice. Dr. Yusuf found that the levels of the protein vascular cell adhesion molecule 1 is 30% higher in the blood of people over the age of 65 than it is in the blood of people under 25 years old. Young mice aged 3 months old are taken to be the equivalent of a 20-year-old human. Young mice injected with blood plasma taken from older mice show signs of brain ageing, more inflammation in the brain and fewer new brain cells being generated. Young mice injected with the blood plasma from humans over 65 years old showed the same signs of brain ageing. Dr. Yusuf was able to prevent the symptoms of ageing caused by the blood plasma by treating the young mice with a neutralising monoclonal antibody to vascular cell adhesion molecule 1, either before they were given the blood plasma from elderly mice or elderly humans, or at the same time. She didn't need to find a way to get the antibody past the blood-brain barrier that's usually a problem for treating the brain because the antibody treats a protein on the cells on the outside of the barrier itself. Dr. Yusuf is patenting her antibody to vascular cell adhesion molecule 1 in hopes of developing a treatment for humans that protects against the effects of ageing. Such a treatment would be simpler, cheaper and more accessible than giving elderly people blood transfusions from young people. And still, with every new discovery, the mice get younger. Dr. Yusuf's talk at the Society for Neuroscience's annual meeting was titled VCAM1 is a mediator of age-related brain inflammation and decreased neurogenesis caused by an age-systemic milieu. Aging reversed by stem cell genes. Since 2006, Researchers have been able to wind back the clock on cells from adults of even advanced age into induced pluripotent stem cells by stimulating four genes known as the Yamanaka factors that are normally only active in embryos. Now, a team led by Professor Juan Carlos Izpizuan Belmonte of the Salk Institute for Biological Studies in La Jolla reversed the age of adult cells from elderly to youth rather than all the way back to the embryonic state. Using this technique, his team have made old mice young again. Activating the Yamanaka factor genes in adult cells in a petri dish in a lab 
undoes the epigenetic markers in cells that instruct them to be adult cells, telling them to be stem cells. In live mice, the Yamanaka factors appear to erase the epigenetic markers of aging, turning old cells young. The team used mutant mice who suffer from a genetic disorder that causes premature aging, called Hutchinson-Guilford progeria syndrome. Children with this syndrome develop symptoms typical of old age, such as weak bones and atherosclerosis. They look old. Most of them die by their teens of strokes or heart attacks. The mutant mice were also engineered to respond to an antibiotic by activating the four genes that turn adult cells in petri dishes into stem cells. When the prematurely aged mice were given the antibiotic, many of the signs of aging, such as thinning of the skin and DNA damage was reduced, and the ability of their mitochondria to turn food into the ATP that cells use for energy improved. After six weeks of treatment, the deterioration of the mouse's hearts, kidneys and spleens were delayed. The treated mice lived more than a third longer than the untreated mutant mice. They even looked younger. The mice didn't have an increased cancer risk, suggesting that the treatment had successfully rewound cells without turning them all the way back into stem cells, which can proliferate uncontrollably in the body, causing cancer. The researchers hoped to reduce the risk of cancer by only stimulating the Yamanaka genes in a few treatments rather than permanently switching them on. The risk of cancer is why the focus is on premature aging diseases like Hutchinson-Guilford progeria syndrome, where there's more justification for experimental treatments. It will take a while to be certain that cancer isn't still going to be a problem eventually. The researchers next tested non-mutant wild-type middle-aged mice whose insulin-making beta cells they'd removed. Turning on the stem cell genes increased the rodents' ability to replace their lost beta cells. Lastly, the researchers tested how well a different group of wild-type middle-aged mice could repair muscle damage caused by cobra venom. As you do. Muscle wasting and ineffective healing is a symptom of aging. The muscles of the mice healed much more quickly and effectively in the treated mice than the untreated mice. They also gave unengineered mice the antibiotic in case the antibiotic alone would have improved muscle healing without the Yamanaka genes being activated. However, those mice did no better than the untreated mice. Taken together, these studies show that there are molecular markers of aging on cells, and that when you undo these markers by briefly stimulating the four genes that can turn cells in addition to stem cells, you can make the cells in a living body work as if the animal were younger, reversing many of the symptoms of aging. The risk of causing cancer this way have been avoided by stimulating the Yamanaka genes temporarily instead of permanently. However, the researchers are still watching for late cancers to show, just in case. Studying the epigenetic markers of aging this way may lead to drug therapies that can reverse aging in about 10 years' time. In the meantime, we're going to be drowning in eternally young mice. The paper was published in the journal Cell and was titled In Vivo Amelioration of Age-Associated Hallmarks by Partial Reprogramming.
You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now, put it to the test by They Might Be Giants. If there's a question bothering your brain that you think you know how to explain, you need a test. Yeah, think up a test. If it's possible to prove it wrong, you're going to want to know before too long, you'll need a test. If somebody says they figured it out And they're leaving any room for doubt Come up with a test Yeah, you need a test Are you sure that that thing is true? Or did someone just tell it to you? Come up with a test Test it out Find a way to show what would happen If you were incorrect Test it out A fact is just a fantasy it can be checked Make a test Test it out If you want to know if it's the truth Then my friend you are going to need proof Come up with a test Yeah, you need a test Don't believe it cause they say it's so If it's not true you have a That was Put It To The Test by They Might Be Giants. You can find more of their music on tmbg.com. Mitchell Seymour works at the National Dinosaur Museum in Canberra. He digs up dinosaurs. Freelance journalist Barry Mackay began by asking him to paint a picture of what it was like digging up a giant dinosaur. 2014, I worked in Australian Age of Dinosaurs up in Winton. I wasn't actually on any of the Savannasaurus digs. I was, I did go out on uh, some of the digs when I was up there, material that has been undescribed so far. But yeah, it was, it's pretty fantastic. It's, the, the way to describe the landscape is really just flat. The year that I was up there was really, really dry as well, so there wasn't a whole heap of grass around. But basically just, you could draw the, you could draw the landscape with a ruler. Basically, big, empty blue skies and... Yeah, big empty savanna plains. I as as a staff member there, I did do a lot less of digging up the bones than the volunteers did. But I did. It was a pretty still a pretty fantastic opportunity to see those bones coming out of the ground. I spent a lot of time on the edge of the pit pulling up fossilized leaves out of the ground as well, which was pretty cool. So, what sort of stuff did you find? Uh, that year, we found. Most of it, the, the tricky part is when it's coming up out of the ground, you're not entirely sure what half of it is. You know it's bone, you know it's pretty big, sometimes you can identify a scapula or some ribs, but it's not until all those fossils have been prepared before you really know what bones you're looking at, unfortunately. So you have no idea what sort of dinosaur you're digging up? Uh, we know it was sauropod, because there was the size of the stuff that we were digging up, there was no way it was anything but sauropod. So tell me what these things you're digging up physically look like. They look like rocks. They look like rocks and they look like bones. It's it's pretty easy to tell the difference between rock and 
and fossilized bone when it's still in the ground because you've got well the bone looks like bone uh the the texture and the color difference is the main thing you get that honeycomb texture of the inside of the bones and the outside of the bones is all the surface of bone yeah so how deep do you have to dig to get this stuff out very very shallow the thing about winton that's a bit tricky is that it's all coming out from under soil most other places you're looking at rock faces to pull bones out uh out in winton you've got to get you got to get the black soil away so you're wandering around in paddocks picking up these little bits and pieces that have come up through the black soil and then once you've collected all of that that you can out comes the bulldozer and takes off the topsoil layer to get to the rock underneath where the rest of the bones are hopefully so does the bulldozer do any damage so you do dig around in the black soil with the smaller diggers to make sure that there's no more material coming up through the black soil but the black soil itself does a lot of damage to those bones so pulling them apart as it as it shuffles up through the soil as that soil moves around so a lot of the damage is already done as far as the black soil goes and then as soon as you get to the end of the black soil it stops and it's all digging manually to make sure you don't destroy anything so this black soil you're talking about does it preserve the fossil fairly well or the fossilized bone no the bone the the well-preserved bone is coming from the rock underneath the black soil the black soil is your top surface layer and as it dries out you get cracks forming in it and then dust in the top layer will blow down those cracks and when you get larger stuff like bone you get those cracks going in underneath bones and filling it up then those cracks form again and so you kind of get this shuffling of the deck pulling all of these large chunks up through the black soil they settle on the surface so how difficult a process is it to say pull up one of the larger bone specimens it it can be pretty difficult a lot of this stuff a lot of the bigger jackets so you try and dig dig out as much as you can but sometimes the jackets are fairly substantial and you need you but you know the bulldozer sitting around there to get that black soil away anyway so you just use the the bulldozer to pull some of these larger jackets out of the out of the pits what do you mean by jackets so once you've found your bone you don't want to be sitting in that hole in somebody's paddock for three years while you prepare the fossils so jacket is how we wrap up the fossils to make sure they're protected for trans transport and storage so rock and bone that's protected in three layers the first being aluminium foil to keep everything in place uh, newspaper to give it a bit of a padding and plaster like your plaster cast that you put on your arm or your leg so are there many exposed fossilized bones lying around in the winton area yes but that's not the best stuff to be looking for so a lot of it it has come up through the black soil so it's very fragmented and not in not perfectly preserved and that's more your little red flags to go hey there's more down in the rock underneath so like david elliott found his first is the end of a thigh bone that was sitting on the surface then there is a lot of stuff out there that it still needs to be dug up i think they've got like 70 sites that they've identified to dig up in the future or something like that and that's just from a couple of properties where did david elliott find his first savannosaurus bone i'm not sure about savannosaurus but savannosaurus is from belmont station so that's the property that he works on I believe it was in 2005. Yeah, 2005. And it was David Elliott himself who found it. It was. I'm pretty sure from from memory. Yeah. 
it was David that found Savannosaurus. There have been other specimens that have been found by other people, so like David's sons have found some, I'm pretty sure. And there have been some from other properties that have been found by other property managers. But yeah, it's mostly the landholders that are out there every day tripping over these funny looking rocks. Now, when you talk about the black soil pushing the stuff up, what sort of process are you talking about? Is there geothermal activity going on? Not at all. It's simply the... the it's a very clay-rich soil. So you everybody's familiar with that image of baked, dried, cracked clays. It's a similar, similar situation to that. So you... Over the over the as as the as the clay as these soils dry out, you get these cracks forming in them. The top layer of you know dust and dead plant and other detritus end up slipping down those cracks. Those cracks go deep down into the ground, so the, the black soil can be anywhere between one and three or three one into three to sometimes even five meters deep. All that debris goes down to those cracks and fills them up. Then it rains. The clay, the the soil swells up again, and that all is all lovely and all mixed together now. It dries out again, and you get new cracks forming. And so basically, you're taking this top top every every time that every time that black soil dries out, you're taking that top layer and slipping it down these cracks. Mm. And so these cracks can go down all the way to the to the bedrock underneath, and prying off bits of the bedrock as that bedrock's weathering. And this swelling of the clay sort of pushes the bones up to the surface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those those cracks can get down underneath these bones as they're being exposed in the weathering bedrock underneath. And so these cracks are filling up with sediment, taking this sediment and plant detritus down underneath the fossils. And then it swells up and pushes it up a little bit, dries out again, cracks get underneath it again, and then it rains and it swells up again. And so it's just... It's it's a very very slow process. So I think it's like five centimeters every ten years or something like that. Uh, I can't remember. I can't remember exactly the exact number of it. But it's like you can look at the fence posts that David Elliott's grandfather put in, and they've moved a couple of inches. Um, yeah. So with deterioration over the years, what are the problems with preserving in that sort of soil? Is it does it does provide problems for the fossils so you'll find bones at the surface but that's not a guarantee as to whether or not there's bones down in, underneath in the bedrock it could be that the couple of pieces that you've got on the surface are the first pieces of bone that have broken off from this entire skeleton that's been that's buried in the bedrock underneath or it could be that the entire skeleton has come up through the bedrock cuts come up through the black soil from the bedrock has been weathered away and crushed and stepped on by cows and sheep and people or whatever and broken down to dust and you've only got these couple of little bits left and when those bones are coming up through the black soil as well you get cracks in the bones the bones are very brittle and uh, you get problems with the stuff that comes up through the black soil first being not as well preserved very deteriorated compared to the stuff that's in the bedrock underneath how much material is there still out there in the winton area there is a ridiculous amount of stuff that's still out there to be to be found like the 70 sites that i mentioned earlier that they've still got to dig up and that's only from a couple of properties there are vast expanses of western queensland that are all this one rock formation the winton formation that should be chockers full of dinosaurs 
I need I need to do the maths to figure out exactly the land area, but it's like an eighth or one sixth of Queensland that's this Winton formation that's just going to be chockers full of dinosaurs. So any potential tourists who go out there might possibly spot something. If if you're out there in Western Queensland, definitely go check out Australian Age of Dinosaurs, Lark Quarry Stampede, uh, Chronosaurus Corner in Richmond. And I think Hewenden has a has a discovery center there with dinosaurs and other fossils as well. Uh, there and it's early days still. There's a lot of stuff that still needs to be dug up, and we're going to be describing new dinosaurs for decades. What happens to the stuff once it gets back to the Age of Dinosaurs Museum? What do they do with it then? So once it gets taken back to the museum, it gets prepared, and that can take years. You've got the vast blocks of rock that you need to take remove with dentist tools basically these air scribes and micro jacks they're taking away all this excess rock to uncover in, uncover the rest of the bone uh, it needs to be once it's been prepared it needs to be described so you need to figure out what bits you've got from which and what dinosaurs they belong to if it's something new you need to describe every detail and of every single bone to go hey we reckon this is a new dinosaur like savannosaurus and show yep this is new this is the implications for this and you get to name it as well and then it goes on display all the holotypes holotypes being specimens that are being used to describe new species are on display at australian age of dinosaurs it's one of the few places in the world where you can go and see the holotype specimens right there on display it's really fantastic do they do any dna profiling on these bones to identify which species they are yeah unfortunately it's all too old to have dna uh yeah fossilized they're all rock um dna under perfect preservational conditions is not going to last more than a couple of million years yeah so how would you identify what species of dinosaur you've got in front of you you look for characteristic features of the bones that you're looking at so in savannasaurus capes in Savannosaurus's case, I'd definitely say the hips are going to be a bit of a giveaway. They've got Savannosaurus has got a remarkable, remarkably bizarre set of hips, uh, and yeah, this suite of characters and characteristics that uh, can be used to differentiate them. Like this one's longer, this one's stockier, this one's got these weird little nodules on this part of that bone, and all this kind of thing. Um, and you compare that to dinosaurs that have already been discovered from other parts of Australia or other parts of the world, especially South America, and go, yeah, no, this doesn't match anything that we've found before. This is a new species. Savannosaurus is unlike anything that anybody's ever found before. So it's mostly Cretaceous period dinosaurs that you've got in that part of Queensland. Yeah, it's all. It's there are some Jurassic. There is some Jurassic material from down near Roma, but around Winton. Um, around the Winton Formation, uh, going up to Richmond all, and down to Aramanga, still very far out west, um, is all Cretaceous, yeah. And it's mostly sauropods. The majority of the stuff that they are finding are sauropods. Uh, we do know there were other dinosaurs around there, for example, like Lark Quarry. There's lots of footprints from smaller two-legged plant-eating dinosaurs, little ornithopods and smaller carnivorous dinosaurs. You do have Aunt Cunbarosaurus up from Richmond as well, a little armoured ankylosaur. You've got Mudabarosaurus, which is a large ornithopod from Mudabara, and Australovenator, the horse-sized theropod dinosaur from from 
Australian Age of Dinosaurs as well, but the majority of it is sauropods. They have a lot of sauropods, and and that makes sense as well because they they've got the biggest bones. They're going to be the easiest to spot. Um, a little chicken-sized meat-eating dinosaur, if a fragment of one of its bones comes up through the black soil, probably going to miss it, especially especially when it's sitting there in the grass. Is there anything else you'd like to add? If you've got the chance, go up, check out AOD. Go have a look for yourself. They're always looking for volunteers. So if, hey, this is cool, dinosaurs are pretty awesome, I want to see how this is done. They're always looking for volunteers in that laboratory. You can go work on the dinosaurs yourself. Yeah. That was Mitchell Seymour from the National Dinosaur Museum in Canberra talking with Barry Mackay about digging up dinosaurs. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Go to the website and click the tab on the right to send a voicemail to be played on air. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Support Diffusion by contributing on the Patreon page at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Contributing to the show this week was Barry Mackay. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the community radio network, including two RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, eight Triple C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, two NVR in Nambucca Valley, and three MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords, so you can search out and focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.